Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, April 12th, 2013. We will be finishing up the uh, worst Easter sermon of the year contest today with two wild card entries. Program dedicated only to finishing up this contest. Gotta admit, it was really tough picking from among all of your suggestions and narrowing it down to the two that I thought most worthy to be entered into the contest. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We do the comparative work to see if what they are saying squares with what God's Word says in context. It's very easy to manipulate and twist God's Word to make it say things that it, well, that it doesn't say. And so we help equip you here at Fighting for the Faith so that you will not be schnookered, bamboozled, or hoodwinked by uh, folks who are uh, manipulating God's Word and making it say things that, well, might be um, wonderful to hear for your ego and things like that, but really don't square with Scripture. Okay, so we've been working our way through uh, this year's cadre of uh, bad Easter sermons. And up to this point, I've, well, actually, with one exception, uh, all of the contestants, with the exception of one so far, have been contestants that I have uh, personally found on my own. And, uh, in fact, the first, the very, very first uh, sermon that we listened to uh, from Pastor uh, Leon, or the, the, the one that Barack Obama was at, that was actually a... A suggestion from a listener, uh, Jasmine Leong is her name, and so uh, she suggested that one. In fact, very emphatically, that I had to include that in this year's worst Easter sermon of the year contest. So, contestant number one was a uh, was a listener suggestion. Uh, the three after that were picked by me, and then the, the we have two today that are going to be what I would consider the most worthy of the ones sent to me by listeners. Now, I, I got to tell you, there was one that was sent to me that sh- that would have made it into the contest with this exception, and that is is that um, <clears throat> the reason I excluded, I DQ'd it, if you would, is because it was preached by a Unitarian, Unitarian. And so 
Um, <laughs> I've held on to that one. So if you're if you're the one who sent me the uh, the Easter sermon from the female Unitarian pastrix, um, Unitarianism technically isn't Christianity, and that's the reason why I didn't include it in the mix. But I I want to assure you that certain things said by said uh, Unitarian pastrix on her Easter sermon will make it into future installments of fighting for the faith you know <laughs> so yeah i just want to let you all know that <clears throat> yeah that that was quite historic in fact i'm really looking forward to cutting that up and and debunking some of the things said by uh, that said unitarian pastrix but uh, with that uh, i think it is probably best if i introduce you at least name who will be uh, uh, the the two wild card entries in into this year's worst Easter sermon of the year contest, and so since we're going to do that, we're dedicating the entire program uh, to these two wild card entries. I, I need to do this. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. We have two wild card entries submitted by the listeners of Fighting for the Faith for you to consider today for the 2013 coveted title of Worst Easter Sermon of the Year. The first wild card contestant comes to us via Kansas City, Missouri, from a church, <laughs> no kidding, named... The Kansas City Boiler Room. <laughs> That's the name of the church. <laughs> now, of course, when I think of boiling water, I also think of fire and warm things, and then that reminds me of hell. <laughs> the uh, the name of the sermon we'll be listening to from the Kansas City Boiler Room um, is entitled Recognizing the Resurrection. Recognizing the Resurrection, and it was delivered by Adam Cox of the Kansas City Boiler Room. Once we're finished with that wild card entry, we will take a quick break. And when we come back, we will listen to wild card entry number two, which comes to us via Foursquare Church in uh, Puyallup, Washington. The name of uh, said sermon is entitled Driven by Passion, and it was delivered by Roger Archer, the senior pastor there at Foursquare Church in Puyallup, Washington. So grab some popcorn, tinfoil, pyramid hat, uh, bendy straws, padding, duct tape, tinfoil, pyramid, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's really important that you take all the proper and necessary precautions. And let me kill the music here. And without any further ado, here is wild card entry numero uno today. This would be Adam Cox of the Kansas City Boiler Room and his <clears throat> Easter... Uh, um, Sermon entitled, Recognizing the Resurrection. Here we go. Guys, good news. We're all alive. And so <laughs> yeah, so you know, we're eight seconds. <laughs> this is one of the reasons I picked this sermon for your consideration. Um the, the normally when you go to a Christian church, you know, a Christian church that actually where the pastor would focus us on the fact that Jesus bodily rose from the grave. The saying generally goes, he is risen. He is risen indeed. But no, 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 not Adam Cox. 
Yeah, listen again. It, rather than he is risen, he is risen indeed. Instead, well, we, <laughs> we've got this Easter greeting. Here we go. Guys, good news. We're all alive. Good news. We're all alive. No kidding. Really? Wow. Yeah, that's great news. You know, you got some guy off in the corner going, I'm not dead yet. I'm, I'm still alive. That's great. This is by far the worst Easter sermon greeting that I've heard on Easter yet. I, in fact, it's so bad I got to play it again. Here we go. Guys, good news. We're all alive. <laughs> We continue. And so is Jesus. <laughs> We're all alive and so is Jesus. Well, <laughs> he was dead. And then he was alive. <sighs> we continue. As our dear friend Pete Craig says, he's not good at being dead. He's, Pete and Sammy are here right now. They arrived in the middle of the night to my house. We don't know where they are. Lost in the ether world somewhere. But they, um, they're they here and they're with us this week, which is beautiful. If you don't know who Pete and Sammy and Greg are, they're the bewildered founders of 24-7 Prayer. And uh, they're wonderful, wonderful family. They brought their kiddos. They helped us to establish this uh, church eight years ago. So I've got good news for you guys. Anyone want to hear? Yeah. Everyone say Good news. Good news. Great joy for all people. <laughs> That's from the Christmas text. <laughs> I am so sorry. This is one of the most convoluted things I have ever heard in my life being passed off as an Easter service. <laughs> I've got great news of great joy. To you is born a savior. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's the story you're in. Good news and great joy for all people. Wait, wait, wait. What? The, what? Wait, hang on. Gotta back it up. For all people. For all people. Oh, yeah. That's the story you're in. That's the story you're in. Folks, we are 53 seconds into this wild card <laughs> Easter sermon, and I cannot hold it together. This is some of the most convoluted stuff I have ever heard. It's good news and great joy for all people. You did not join a religion, rules or regulations. You have come to the church, which means the gathering of the family of God, the church of a living God. He's a man. His name is Jesus. He's resurrected at the right hand of the Father, and he's promised to be present in power and in love wherever his people gather in his name. 1 Corinthians 5, 4. Is that not amazing news? This man, Jesus, loved you so much. That he embraced all of your pain, all of your problems. What? I thought that it's that he loved us so much that he died for our sins, or God so loved the world that uh, he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. But not according to Adam Cox of the Kansas City Boiler Room. Hang on. That he embraced all of your pain. He embraced all of my pain. What does that mean? All of your problems. All of so he embraced all of my problems. Okay. All of your disastrous living. He's embraced all of my disastrous living. That's really nice of Jesus to embrace all of my disastrous living. Any 
foul choice that you've made. Any foul choice. This is just ridiculous. Did you write this yourself? He embraced it into his body, and in exchange, he gave you his perfect, beautiful life. And in exchange, he gave you his perfect, beautiful life? (sighs) He gave you life in abundance. He gave you freedom before the Father. He washed all of your sin away. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Did you get that? He washed all of our sin away. Hey, folks, that's actually... This is one of the closest things I've heard to the gospel this entire week, so I've, I've got to at least mark it. Hang on. So that was the obligatory gospel nugget, which isn't even obligatory anymore. There it was. I mean, he washed all of our sins away. That sounds very close to the gospel that I have to give it credit. At that cross where he died, he took it all and he said, welcome home to the embrace of the Father. <laughs> where did Jesus say, welcome home to the embrace of the Father? I, why would I want to embrace him after he's been embracing all of my bad things? That is the good news that we're proclaiming in all the world. This morning, we were not alone. All over the world, saints woke up across the nations of the earth, and they woke up many before the sun. And they woke up to say, the real sun, the Son of God, has risen. Don't you love that every day in creation we have a sunrise to remind us of the reality of the story, that God is alive, that the sun has risen, that we're not serving some dead religion, but there's a living man who holds us all together. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I love Jesus. I heard a man one time say that for 30 years, every day, he woke up to beat the sunrise so he could praise God before the sun did. Now, I've woken up many times by my children, but often not praising the Lord. But I hope to be like this man. This morning I got to wake up before the sun and praise Jesus. We're here to declare that Jesus is alive. That he's real. That he's risen. And this is incredibly good news. Because he didn't just die, he rose from the dead. You see, on the sixth day, the first creation, God completed it, making man. And he crowned that man. And he said, man is the crown of creation. He's the glory of God. Made in the image of God. On the seventh day, what did God do? He rested, and He Sabbathed, and He celebrated, and He inhabited His creation. The eighth day was the first day of a new creation. See, this is what happened. On the sixth day, the Friday of the week, our king died on a piece of wood on a hill called Golgotha. And he, with his dying breath, exclaimed with all of his might, while he was struggling to breathe, crucified, naked, before the Roman Empire, And before the Jews who surrounded him, he screamed, he yelled out, it is finished. You see, on the sixth day, God was finishing something new. But on the seventh day, he rested. He Sabbathed in a tomb. He went to where no man returns. You see, every one of us comes from the dust into the dust we return. You remember that old thing in Ecclesiastes? It is a part of the Bible. All the streams, they run into the rivers. the, The rivers run into the ocean, but the ocean's never full. Who cares, right? He says, we come from dust, we return to dust. It's all meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. See, there's one thing none of us will escape, and that is we are going to return to the dust and we're going to decay there. (laughs) Not great news, huh? So Solomon says, well, what does it matter if you live a moral life or you live an incredibly sinful life and party your way right into the grave? Who cares? What's the difference if we all come from dust and return to dust? It's all meaningless. It's a meaningless treadmill of human existence. We are going nowhere fast. 
one man who came, created in the womb, and did not return to that dust? What if he could walk through walls and say, do not fear, because there's no place that you can go that he hasn't been in one there. Every place you can possibly go in your pain, every place you possibly can go in your disillusionment, in your unbelief, in your brokenness, there he's gone. But he's going to even go one place, the place of no return, that you will go, but that place couldn't hold him. He went right into the heart of darkness and he let it swallow him. He went right into the grave of death where no man returns. And in that place, from inside of death, he exploded it and overcame it and he was victory. He was utter victory. You see, every place Jesus has been, he's won. So when he walks through walls and says, do not fear. He's saying there's no place you can go where I'm not there and where I haven't won. You see, there's no place. In Kansas City right now, it is absolutely... Actually, when Jesus said, when he appeared after he had been raised from the dead, uh, do not be afraid. uh, The biblical texts tell us that the reason why he said that is because... Uh, the disciples thought that they had, they were seeing a ghost. And then Jesus said, no, touch me and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bone as you see that I have. <clears throat> we continue. We filled to the brim with pain and disillusionment and hopelessness and downcast souls. You see, to every one of those, the resurrection comes and says, I've won. Yes. In that place, I've won. Come on. We know the reality of pain. You, you know, one of the reasons why this goes so bad is because um, right here at the front, he's not doing something he really should be doing. He should have a biblical text open and should be preaching from that. <clears throat> that makes it a lot easier to to do the work accurately. Right. We continue. We know what it feels like to be hopeless. I do. I remember the Resurrection Sunday where after 11 months I struggled with anxiety attacks every single day. Waking up with my heart racing, just feeling like my world was caving in on me. I remember that morning when I woke up and I thought, in every place he's one. See, the resurrection isn't some theological understanding or religious meaning. It means one man broke the hopeless cycle of humanity. That is why we worship him. Mm-hmm. Isn't that a theological understanding? I mean, I don't know how accurate your theological understanding is of the resurrection, but you just said that the resurrection isn't a theological understanding, and then you ascribe the theology to it. Listen in. See, the resurrection isn't some theological understanding or religious meaning. It means one man broke the hopeless cycle of humanity. Mm, yeah, that sounds like a theological understanding. It's, albeit it's a really screwy one that you seem to have just made up rather than found in a biblical text. But we continue. That is why we worship him. And on the eighth day, on that Sunday when he rose out of the grave, you see, on the eighth day, that was the first day of a whole new creation. There was hope for everyone and everything. And everything was reconciled to God. That is why he leads the resurrection parade, friends. Come on. Everything will be like he is. At this present time, we don't see everything subject to him. We still see our friends die from cancer. But you know what? There's a man at the right hand of God whose physical body is perfectly under the reign and rule of God. And Hebrews says, though we don't see everything in our creation subject to him right now, we see Jesus. 
And we know that as he is, all of us will be. All of us will live because he lives. Amen. Amen. See, there is these two guys walking on the road. I only have about 10 minutes to go crazy with you guys because we're going to discuss on the table. Would you permit me to awaken the greatness of God inside of you by the power of the Holy Spirit? You want to do what? Hang on a second. I got to back that up. You, You Hey, what did you what did you say you wanted to do? Would you permit me to awaken the greatness of God inside of you by the power of the Holy Spirit? You want to awaken it, awaken the greatness of God inside of me by the power of the Holy Spirit. What are you talking about? We continue. I've been praying that an awakening would happen in our hearts in the resurrection, not because it's a one day of the year where we get Easter eggs and we celebrate that He's risen. Every Sunday the church has met for 2,000 years because that is the day we remember resurrection. But the reality is every moment of our lives, we are the people of God gathered around a living God. We've been in the devotion of koinonia, which means our relationships are ordered and made real and right by the living Jesus in our midst. We are the people, the church of Jesus. He is the one, the center pillar. He is the one that makes sense of all of us. He is the one that orders our relationship as our King and our Lord. But we're moving now in the boiler room. We've been there for a number of weeks. We're moving into this devotion of reconciliation. The place where we run with Him in the reality that He's alive. And we include the world in that same hope. We're moving to that place. And I want to share a story with you. The Emmaus story. That bridges these two realities. Is that okay? Can I do that? The Emmaus story bridges what? What two realities? Huh? Okay. Can we get lost in a moment with two friends walking on the road to nowhere? Meaningless, meaningless. You see, it wasn't just their girlfriend that had broken up with them. It was the most incredible, disillusioning pain that you can possibly imagine. They watched the one who promised, the only one they ever believed could fulfill the promise of life to bring the kingdom of God to earth, die on a piece of wood. This is utter hopelessness. It says they were walking on a road about seven miles to this place called Emmaus. And while they were on the road, there was a guy that came up and started walking with them. Don't you love that the resurrection doesn't show up with light like the sun and bells and whistles and say, Ta-da! Here I am! But the resurrection comes humbly walking and asking questions to disillusioned people just like us. Aren't you glad that the resurrection comes humbly walking and asking questions? Oh, man. (laughs) This is ridiculous. But there's this crazy line there. It says, but they were kept from recognizing him. Yeah, actually, the Greek talks about how their eyes were held. Yes. I wonder how many times in my life. I've been kept from recognizing the one who's walking with me. (laughs) Well, how many times have you walked with Jesus? You know, I mean, I mean, who knows? I mean, maybe it happens all the time. Maybe, you know, when you're, well, a lot of people don't walk nowadays. They normally take a car. And so, I mean, maybe you were out walking because you're exercising or maybe you went to the park and you decided, you know, to walk on a trail and that person that came up next to you. Who knows? Maybe it was Jesus. Was he humbly asking questions? 
and asking me questions because my life is so filled with a personal drama, with so much pain, with problems, that my perspective's utterly off. He asked them, what are you talking about? You see, this thing of koinonia, our relationships around the table, our lives together, it makes no sense unless Jesus is walking with us. All we have... Really? Wow. So uh, so our koinonia, because of the Emmaus story, our koinonia doesn't make any sense unless Jesus is walking with us. I had no idea what that, that that passage meant that. Weird. I thought it was... Yeah, never... <laughs> I might end up having to teach this passage, although it's one of the ones we teach a lot here at Fighting for the Faith. We continue. We have as community without Jesus is our own human perspective, our own limited comfort. But what if there's a living one who's with us? What if there's a living one walking with us? He goes, what are you talking about? Can't you see our generation having endless conversations that are going nowhere? Walking on a road to nowhere because they don't know where they're supposed to be going. They don't know what their life's all about. Swallowed up in their own problems and drama. But there's this guy who's asking us questions. Now, now wait a second. The guys on the road to Emmaus, they weren't going nowhere. The text says they were going to Emmaus. <laughs> I mean, if you... If you're going to allegorize a text, which I strongly advise that you don't, if you're going to allegorize a text, at least allegorize it correctly. I mean, it's not like Emmaus was nowhere, and it's not like they were heading nowhere. <sighs> I'm going to have to read this text. Okay, um, Luke chapter 24, uh, starting at verse 13, if you'd like to follow along. The, uh, that very day, this is the day of the resurrection, uh, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus. That means they were not on the road to nowhere. <laughs> oh, man. And about seven miles from Jerusalem. Yeah, we even know where it is. Isn't that crazy? And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept... Um, yeah, again, it's, it, it, the Greek word is, is that, you know, their eyes were grasped or held and something happened more. It's miraculous. Okay. Their eyes were held and they were kept from recognizing Jesus. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still and looking sad. Then one of them named uh, Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Now, I'm going to pause here for a second and kind of throw in a historical note, okay? And that's this, that prior to this, there were several different people who had shown up in Judea claiming to be somebody, even having the audacity to think that maybe they were the Messiah. And, well, the one thing that they all had in common is, is that their cause died with them because these people died. Oftentimes they were killed. They were more like insurrectionists rather than messiahs. And 
back then, you know, if the if the leader of a movement dies, the movement dies with the leader. That's generally how it goes. But if they try to keep it going, that you know, maybe they'll find a brother or something like that to kind of keep the idea the uh, that um, you know that kind of thing. Anyway, you get what I'm saying here. So. I mean, at this point, Jesus looks just like, well, at least to the these disciples, Jesus looks like just like one of them, with the exception that he was mighty in deed and word. I mean, Jesus, unlike them, was a miracle worker. He he healed the blind, he cast out demons, and you know he raised the dead and healed the sick. I mean, so Jesus was very different than these other folks, and they really were putting their Hope that he was the Messiah, but just like all of those other guys who didn't actually turn out to be the Messiah, Jesus died, and so this it's you know they're at this point thinking, how, what went wrong, right? So how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this. It is now the third day since these things happened, and moreover, some of the women of our company, they amazed us. Uh, they were at the tomb early this morning, and when they and did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him, well, they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted them in all of the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is far spent. So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them, and then their eyes were opened. And they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour, and they returned to Jerusalem. Literally, they... They hoofed it back the seven miles. We got to get back and tell him. And they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered and saying, the Lord has risen indeed. See, this is where this comes from. The Lord has risen indeed. And he has appeared to Simon. And they told, then they told what had happened on the road and how he had, they, he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Absolutely amazing story, right? Jesus himself comes and he opens up the scriptures and shows them how all of the scriptures are about him and all the things that he had to fulfill, right? And that they were fulfilled. This is exactly what the prophets had spoken. Ah, good stuff here. So that, I mean, that's just kind of an overview of the text itself in context. And now let's see what Adam does with it. I love that humility. And he, it says they stopped I don't know if there was something in his voice. I don't know if it annoyed them. I don't know what it was. But it says they stopped and they looked down to the ground and their faces were downcast. See, the result of pain and problems swallowing us up is a downcast soul. It's a perspective that just looks down. 
Oh, no. So now this is all about, what well, are you downcast in your life? And do you have a downcast soul because of the problems in your life? That's not what this text is about. It's where we lose worship and wonder and awe. And there they're standing, faces downcast to the ground. And they say, who are you? Don't you know, apparently this crucifying the king of the Jews was a major deal. Haven't you heard what's gone on in Jerusalem? Are you a foreigner? Where are you from? He goes, go on, tell me more. (laughs) Don't you love that? Go on. Sure, what things do you talk about? They go, don't you know Jesus of Nazareth? He was powerful in word and deed. He was amazing. And then the chief elders and priests, they crucified him, they stripped him naked, and he died. And he goes, okay, tell me more. And they go, well, we had hoped. Do you hear that? When every story of your life, the grand dreams you had fall in on you. (laughs) Oh, really? We had hoped. And so now we're going to insert ourselves into this text. I assure you, we're not in there. Nope. Just like Jesus opened up the scriptures and showed them all of the passages, really how the scriptures were about him and all the things that must happen, this story is about Jesus. This has absolutely nothing. I mean, absolutely nothing. Zip, zero, nada, nothing to do with your hopes and your dreams, or your smashed dreams and hopes, and 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 things like that. That you sticking them in here at this point, Adam, shows that you don't know what you're doing, and you're doing it in a text where Jesus Himself points out all the things about Him in all of the Scriptures. You might want to take a cue from Jesus. The Bible's about Him. It's not about you. It's not about me. Your hope is gone. We're living in a city where so many people, their hope is utterly gone. Family doesn't make sense. School doesn't make sense if they even get the opportunity. They can't get a job. They don't know where to go. And they had hoped that there was someone who would come with magic words to restore everything to them. But it's all dead before their eyes. And they're hopeless. They had hoped. He looks at them. I love this moment. He looks him in the eyes and he goes, there's more than your perspective filled with pain. There's more. What text are you reading? There's, <laughs> there's more than your perspective filled with pain? Huh? Don't you remember the promise? Don't you remember what is promised? He will suffer and then be raised. He goes, why won't you believe? <laughs> then he chastises him. Why won't you believe? What version are you reading here? You see, when we live from promise and not from pain, something happens. <laughs> oh, this is a train wreck. <laughs> when we live from promise and not from pain. Oh, good night. They could not recognize the resurrection right there with them because pain was their perspective. No, because the text says their eyes were held. (laughs) Disappointment was their reality and destiny was taken from them. (laughs) 
Oh, man. This is what happens when somebody who's not qualified to preach tries to preach. Oh, man. Hang on. It's, this is horrible. Backing it up. They could not recognize the resurrection right there with them because pain was their perspective. Disappointment was their reality and destiny was taken from them. <laughs> Disappointment was their reality. <laughs> and destiny was taken from them. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> we continue. And he goes, starting with Moses, and then through all the prophets, he begins to wake them up. <laughs> Why weren't they awake when they got to Emmaus? Oh, man. Hopefully they were awoken to their destiny. Can you imagine? This is the servant of sermons. This is the one I've devoted. <laughs> no, 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 no. This is not the servant of sermons. At least your sermon isn't. Jesus' sermon is, but... I devoted the last 10 years of my life to. What did he say on that road to those two hopeless travelers? What I want to know is that story. I it says that he opened up the scriptures about all the things concerning him. In other words, you read all of the Bible from beginning to end. Moses and the prophets, the New Testament, Old Testament, everything. It's about Jesus. I want to be set into it, and I want to live in the midst of a family that is not swallowed up by their pain and personal drama, but rises up. Their hearts are not downcast, but they lift their eyes to their maker and creator, who is their savior. And something awakens in them as he tells them the story, the gospel, from beginning to end. And then cheeky Jesus goes, all right, guys, see you later. And they go, what? No, stay with us. We've never heard anything like that. Come to our house tonight. We'll make you a meal. Come on. You didn't read the text before you preached it, did you? She's like, okay, cool. I wanted to stay anyways. And they bring them to the table at their <laughs> Jesus said, what? Hey, <laughs> hang on, I just gotta back this up. Come to our house tonight, we'll make you a meal. Come on. Jesus said, okay, cool. <laughs> I wanted to stay anyways. And they bring them to the table at their house. And it's three of them. Does this ring with God's story, eternal family? Can't you see Father, Son, and Spirit? Jesus is like, this is kind of familiar. We've been doing this for a long time. There they are, two hopeless kids and Jesus. They don't know who it is still. At one point they go, yeah, it's kind of weird. You see, the, the women came and they said an angel had moved the stone. And uh, we remember that Jesus had said, you know, he would rise from the dead. You see, we will not recognize the resurrection just through someone else's report. <laughs> Yeah, totally wing it. Just make up stuff. I mean, it's <laughs> really, wow. Where's the part where the aliens come down and bring back Elvis? I mean, seriously, dude, this isn't very hard. All you got to do is bring a Bible with you and read it. People can tell you all day long, oh, an angel did it, or uh, God's real, listen to my story. And that's powerful, but sometime Jesus has got to come to your table. At some point, you and your friends.
has got to walk with the living God. And I guess what? Jesus has set a table for each one of us where he wants to reveal himself and open our eyes to his reality. Apparently he hasn't visited your table yet because you're clearly as blind as they get. And at that table, Jesus gives a little wink. They begin to exchange laughter and hanging out. I love this moment. Soaking together. And all of a sudden... (laughs) They were... (laughs) They were what? (laughs) This is ridiculous. Hang on. Backing it up. Exchange laughter and hanging out. I love this moment. Soaking together. They were soaking together. Maybe they had a pedicure while they were at it. And all of a sudden he turns and he takes the bread and he gets that little glimmer in his eye. And he says, thank you, Father, for your provision. And he breaks it. And he says he passes the bread. And as he does, their eyes are opened and they recognize. They recognize who's been walking with them all along. They recognize it at a table. At a table where we find out that God the King was broken for us. He was broken bread and poured out wine. That He emptied Himself entirely to give us fullness. And as soon as they recognize the resurrection, He disappears. I love that part. (laughs) Don't you love it? Because they were going to have to learn to walk with resurrection by faith through the spirit that dwells in them (laughs) what (laughs) again where are you getting any of this that is this story sound familiar to anybody not the way you're telling it they get up from the table they grab each other's shoulders and they go where our hearts not burning within us as he told us the story you see a disillusioned generation is going to wake up Oh, so a dissolution generation is going to wake up because of this. Oh my, I'm backing it up. This is ridiculous. As he told us the story, you see a disillusioned generation is going to wake up with burning hearts when the church tells the gospel from beginning to end again. Yeah, that's fine, except for you're not doing it. Their hearts are going to burn with destiny and identity and... Your hearts are going to burn with dense, de- destiny. You are my de- density. Oh, man. So we're going to have burning hearts of destiny and identity. And how are you getting any of this from this text? Their hearts are going to burn with destiny and identity in, in the place of this disillusioned perspective. Yeah, right. And they look at each other and they run with joy seven miles back to Jerusalem. It's like a quarter marathon. They run and they bust into the house where the eleven are. Because you only run when it's alive with joy. That's when you run. And this is the moment where we transition from coining at the table to running in the resurrection. transition from <laughs> from Koinonia to running in the resurrection. I don't know if I want to run in the resurrection. I, you know, I could barely do a 5K. This is what the city's waiting for. It's waiting for these tables 
to burn with the gospel and run towards the pain of dissolution. <laughs> burn with the what and run towards the where? Oh, man. That is what we're talking about. And they run as friends, alive with burning hearts, because they met the living God and they're now witnesses of it. Doesn't this sound like Paul's prayer? He just goes off in Ephesians 1. In Christ, we have every blessing in heavenly places. And he just goes on. The eternal will and dream of the Father is accomplished in Jesus. And then he goes, now I'm going to pray out of it. He goes, I keep asking. I keep asking that he would give you the Holy Spirit of wisdom and revelation that you would know him better. I pray for that for us today. I hope that God answers that prayer. That's a good prayer for you to be praying. It's clear you don't know much. We're awakening the conscience of a living God so we can run in the resurrection, folks. Amen. Run in the resurrection. It's, you know, it's right after the turkey trot in the fall, you know. Amen. He goes, wait, I'm not done. Please just permit me to pray a little longer. I also pray that the eyes of your heart would be filled with light. That you may know the hope of your calling. What if the resurrection changed everything for us? Well, technically it does, and it has, and you're not really explaining it correctly as to how it does that. What if now you're the sons and daughters of the Father included, and where there was only a, a domination of personal drama, there's now endless possibility in his... his <laughs> Hang on, a domination of personal drama? <laughs> what do you think the human problem is? Drama and destiny? And Hang on a second, got to back this up. This is a weird statement. And where there was only a, a domination of personal drama, there's now endless possibility in his resurrection life. Yeah, so if you were been dominated by personal drama, because of the resurrection, you can have, yeah, whatever. <laughs> Some somebody needs to take a collection for this poor kid and send him to a real seminary. I'm trying to wake up the greatness of God in every single one of you because the, yeah, because no such thing exists. The resurrection means everybody's in, everybody plays, everybody gets life. You sound like a Rob Bell Universalist. I pray that you would know the hope of your calling. His glorious inheritance in the saints. Do you realize how valuable we are? Oh my gosh. Do you know how valuable the blood of Christ is? That God became a man and gave us his value. We are the inheritance of God. And then he goes, I've got to keep praying. Is it okay if I keep praying? I'm also praying that you would know the incomparably great power. Do you guys know? That you have incomparably great power. Some translations say unsurpassed power for those who what? Believe in the promise. Believe. He goes, let me just try to describe. What would that promise be exactly? I don't think you know what it is. Describe to you. It's like powerful power. It's like. <laughs> powerful power, yeah. It's like the working of his mighty strength. God's kind of strong. Sort of, you think? It's mighty strength that raised a man from the dead and then didn't just raise him from the dead, but 
raised him up and seated him far above every power and title and authority that can be given not only in this age, but the age to come. And he did all this for the church. Everyone say, for the church. That's us. And we are his body that fills everything in every way. Do you see the resurrection is waiting? Kansas City is waiting for an encounter in your life. Kansas City, it really is an encounter in my life. The people around you are waiting for an encounter in your life. Really? I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't think I could even outline this sermon. It's not lucid. So this is the prayer. So we're around tables today, and this is the question I want to ask. We're going to have fun at the table. Today is about stirring an awakening of greatness in us. There we go again. So shaken, uh, stirred, but not shaken greatness within you. Uh huh. Yeah, I'm pretty sure there's nothing great inside of me. Because the living God is alive, stirring consciousness of this one who's alive. Stirring the consciousness, uh uh-huh. So we want to tell stories this morning. Really? Not biblical stories, stories. It was incredible to watch all of the, literally the testimonies were so varied that at the end of it, I realized, oh, God inhabits all of life. Isn't that awesome? You can tell a story of meeting with someone. This week I met with this amazing man at Panera Bread, and he goes, Yeah, in 1974, I led this guy in North Vietnam to the Lord. He spent 30 years in Asia. He goes, I led this guy to the Lord. His name was Paul I. And after that, Paul was sent to three different prisons, persecuted by the North Vietnamese. And after that, he planted 250 churches. There's now 300,000 believers who have come to the Lord through his life. I was like, hang on, what? I literally felt gripped in my heart like a pain. I had to go and sit in my car for 10 minutes the other morning. I think it was Friday morning. I just went and sat in my car in tears thinking, what kind of story are we in? Wake up, Adam. Wake up. Wake up. 300,000 North Vietnamese coming to Christ in a communist regime. What in the world? I thought of a moment in prayer where the Father addressed me in an intimate way in my journal that no one else knows. He's a living God. You can share a story of prayer. You can share a dream you had. You can share a way that God provided for you and broke it. The point is the church is gathered around the testimony of a living Christ. And we should be doing this all the time. We're going to take the next 20, 25 minutes, and then we're going to come back together, and we're going to break bread around the table as Jesus did in his resurrection. Don't you love that Jesus still broke bread in the resurrection? Amen. Okay, so whoever's the table leader, you can kick it off. All right, so the sermon's over. It ends with everybody in their tables sharing their testimonies. Well, there you go. That's uh, wild card sermon number one. And we got two wild cards today. That was Adam Cox of the Kansas City Boiler Room um, in his sermon entitled Recognizing the Resurrection. Obviously, there's some problems there. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll be listening to wild card sermon number two. Uh, from Puyallup, Washington. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is 
Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Stay tuned, we will be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. presents Church Day Select. Okay then, uh, Mr. Haas. The results of the test have come back. What are they, Doc? Uh, not good. That's what. What do you mean? What's wrong with me? Where do you want me to start? Is that all mine? That and the seven other stacks of paperwork just like it. Oh, dear. Oh, dear, indeed. I guess we can start off with the good news. Okay. You don't have cancer. Oh, thank God. Funny that you'd say that. Why? Now, don't get ahead of yourself. As I said before, you don't have cancer. And that's about it for the good news. Huh? Moving on. This here is an x-ray of your esophagus and your stomach. Wait! What are those? Please, try to stay calm while I explain the prognosis. What? For the sake of contrast, I've included the same type of x-ray from a healthy patient. Oh, no. Oh, no, indeed. Now, I've seen my fair share of cases like these, but nothing is ever compared to what you've got going on. Uh, are those... Yes. Those are pentagrams emblazoned on the unprotected skin of your esophagus. Is that the reason For that... your heartburn? Oh, no. Not even close. If you look closely, we have identified this black lump in your stomach as brimstone. That is the cause of your heartburn. And no, Nexium won't fix it. How can this be happening to me? Well, to put it simply... You've contracted a religiously transmitted disease. But how? Well, there are many ways. One of the more common ways is to preach heresy and to openly accept the teaching of the devil and his ways. But, 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 but... Oh, trust me, this is only the tip of the iceberg. Do you know how much sulfur we found in your golem? You found what in my what? Sulfur. You see, it's normal to find in some of the victims of possession. But you were something extraordinary. We found three whole pounds of it in there. Three pounds? Don't even get me started on the pH of your blood, though. Hoo-wee! There was some nasty stuff. Melted right through our equipment when one vial exploded in the centrifuge. Yes, sir. You've got yourself a really nasty religiously transmitted disease. What am I going to do? For starters, I would stop spewing those lies you pass off as sermons down at your church. That should start to alleviate some of the burning sensations. I on that note, I would suggest some good old-fashioned expository teaching because the only thing that's going to fight off this disease is the Word of God. I can't believe 
believe what I'm hearing. That's obvious. You certainly won't be able to unless the father himself draws you. There's got to be an easier way. I gotta ask you, have you considered baptism? What's that got to do with anything? Oh, I don't know. Circumcision of the heart, not done by human hands for the forgiveness of your sins. Ring any bells? You're not being helpful. Well, if you don't want to do any of that, I guess all I can do is fill out your prescriptions. Here you go. What? What's a three-month supply of vision lack supposed to do? Oh, trust me. You're gonna need it. You can register now for the 10th annual Branson Worldview Weekend in beautiful Branson, Missouri, Friday night, April 26th, Saturday, April 27th, and Sunday morning, April 28th, 2013. Full details are at worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. That's worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. Speakers this year will include Ken Ham of Answers in Genesis. We'll also have speaking with us for the first time his son-in-law, Bodie Hodge, along with Pastor Jesse Johnson, a regular guest here on Worldview Weekend Radio. We'll also be joined by Chris Pinto with a brand new presentation. Mike Gendron will also bring a new presentation, as will Dr. Jimmy DeYoung. We'll also be joined this year for the first time at a Branson Worldview Weekend by Jason Carlson and Jared Carlson. We'll also be joined for the first time in a conference setting by Carl Tykrib. Full details at worldviewweekend.com. We have a family rate and group rate. You can go ahead and purchase your tickets now and receive priority upfront seating when you purchase your tickets now at worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. And join us April 26, 27, and 28 in Branson, Missouri. Missouri. Have you purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. All right, we're back. Uh, warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to, well, harm yourself if you don't take the proper precautions, because some of the things you hear on this program are absolutely bizarre. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions to keep bringing Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. You can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our 
two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you, thank you, thank you for your support. We cannot do what we do without it. Okay, here is Wild Card Sermon number two. Uh, These are the two that made it for our listener submissions. This one comes to us via Foursquare Church, Puyallup, Washington. Roger Archer presiding. The name of it is Driven by Passion, and I need to kind of set this up so that you know what it is that you're listening to. This is an Easter sermon. It was delivered on Easter. Uh, the, The pastor is... Um, he's, he, you remember, uh, was it Don Johnson from the, uh, uh, Miami vice from the 1980s? He's wearing something that's kind of reminiscent of a Don Johnson, uh, outfit. And he's got a Hawaiian, um, what are those fr- flower wreaths? Uh, uh, the, 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 the lay it's called a lay. He's got a flower lay, a Hawaiian lay around his neck. And, um, <laughs> He looks like he's been vacationing in Bermuda or something. And the sermon begins by playing a video of um, Jeff Gordon undercover doing a test drive in a Chevy Camaro. And the the guy from the dealership doesn't know that it's a hidden camera kind of situation. And so that's what this Easter sermon begins with. So without any further ado, here is Driven by Passion by Roger Archer. Here we go. Nice and easy. We'll just head on out and whenever you're ready. Are oh, you ready to go ahead and, yeah. and drive? Okay, yeah, sure. It's got some power, so just get a feel for it. Okay. Okay, all right. But he's off just a little bit. He's off. So I was thinking a lot more age on me, some wrinkles. A little dorky, maybe some facial hair. Somebody that I can pull off a fun prank with. (laughs) Let's go have some fun. Hi, Mike. Steve, nice to meet you, Mike. I saw you sort of gravitated towards the Camaro. You thinking about getting one? Oh, no, no, no. This is way too much car for me. I tell you what, I think a way to really make you feel comfortable would be to put you behind the wheel. You're good. (laughs) Power. Power door locks, standard, of course. You're going to wreck this card. You're liable for it if you wreck it. That's right. This Easter sermon begins with a Jeff Gordon undercover video where the poor unsuspecting victim of this um, <clears throat> prank, he's saying OMG, which is I think is also, you know, well, relevant and inappropriate on Easter Sunday, but any Sunday too. But we continue. Just take us back. Yeah. What do you mean? I'm calling the cops. No, 
no. You don't understand. It's not what you think. It's not what you think. No, it's just a prank. We're just having fun. Look, this is a camera. Here's a camera. There's cameras. Look, it was all just fun. Look, I'm Jeff Gordon. Sorry, man. Sorry. We'll do it again. Yeah, we'll do it again. Easter. Yeah, so the sermon begins with that. And a guy who looks like kind of a Don Johnson washout wearing a Hawaiian lei in Puyallup, Washington. We showed you that video so that we could predicate this inaugurative, inaugural interrogative. We asked. <laughs> You're doing what? Hang on a second. This guy's trying. Did did you use a thesaurus when you put this uh, phrase together? We showed you that video so that we could predicate this inaugurative, inaugural interrogative. We asked the question, what drives you? <laughs> yeah, because, you know, Easter's all about what drives me and, well, you. And, uh-huh. and as this video can attest, it matters what drives you. <laughs> As we investigate that very same interrogative with Jesus, it's pretty simple. What drove Jesus was love. Love for his father's house. Love for his father's name. And love for his father's children. No one took Jesus' life from him, mind you. Jesus gave his life willingly and lovingly because he was driven by passion. Ralph Waldo Emerson, one of my favorite authors of all time, said, Nothing great ever occurs without enthusiasm. It's somewhat paradoxical to consider... Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, the uh, 19th century transcendentalist? Yeah, because, you know, that, his philosophy and Christianity, they just fit... No, they don't fit together at all, but... Consider the fact that it was enthusiasm and passion... That drove Jesus to Golgotha, the hill upon which he was to be crucified. Jesus so loved us, and God so loved us, that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would never perish, but have eternal life. I'm here to tell you, my friends. Now, hang on a second here. I've got to be consistent here. That was the gospel. So here's the gospel nugget sound bite. Here we go. There was, there was the gospel. I'm, sh- I don't know if it'll come back. Maybe it'll make another flyby later in the sermon. We'll see. But there it is. I mean, that is not a passive act. It's a passionate act. And today we are going to investigate and interrogate passion, because just as we ask the question, "What drove Jesus?" we have to ask the question, "What drives you?" What is your passion? What are you most passionate about? I'm here to encourage you that if your passion is aligned... Well, yeah, um, Jesus, that would be my passion. And you don't seem to be preaching about him on Easter, which is really contrary to my passion. Weird. With a love for God, a love for God's house, and a love for God's people, the net direct result is that your life is going to find fulfillment. Because once we align Passion with purpose, the direct result is fulfillment. Come on, how many of you want to be fulfilled? Uh, what Bible verse says that again? Let's re- rewind the tape and 
Listen to that little litany, and, and what happens when does the... Hang on. I'm here to encourage you that if your passion is aligned with a love for God... So if you have a passion aligned with the love for God... A love for God's house... And, and a, his house... And a love for God's people... And the people, got The it. net direct result is that your life is going to find fulfillment. Ah, so I'm looking for fulfillment by aligning passion... For the people in the house and the, okay. Because once we align passion with purpose, the direct result is fulfillment. Um, what verse says that? Never, I can't recall a single passage that says, well, this sentence. Hang on. Passion with purpose, the direct result is fulfillment. So once we align passion with purpose, then we can experience fulfillment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where'd you get that from again? Come on, how many of you want to be fulfilled in life? All right, all 11 of you are going to get yours. The rest of you are going to get sour lemons and grapes. In John chapter 2, verse 13, Jesus is 30 years old. He has not yet begun his public ministry, but he's about to launch into that city of Cana where he turns water into wine and performs his first miracle. But prior to that, Jesus is in the city of Jerusalem where quite actually he hardly spent any time. As a matter of fact, 80% of the entire Gospels are set in the northern area of the Galilee, which is very rural. But on this particular occasion, Jesus is in Jerusalem. In the, he's in the urban area where all commerce and worship takes place. And he is about to get busy in his father's house. Because Passover is about to be celebrated. Now, for many of us, Passover might be a foreign term. So let me give you a point of reference and a point of origin. 4,000 years prior to the setting of this writing, 6,000 years ago from today, the nation of Israel was enslaved in the nation of Egypt by the harsh taskmaster and the Pharaoh. God- oh, hang on a second here. How long ago was that? Hold on. I don't think he got it. I don't think he has his dates right. 4,000 years prior to the setting of this writing. 4,000 years before Jesus. I didn't think that Moses and Abraham were 4,000 years before Jesus. Maybe two, but not four. 6,000 years ago from today. The nation of Israel was enslaved in the nation of Egypt by the harsh taskmaster and the Pharaoh. Yeah, no, that's at the, the farthest range out. That's 2,000 years. You need to check, actually, when you prepare a sermon, you actually need to check a good, you know, Bible commentaries and chronologies and things like that to get your dates right. We continue. God sent a man by the name of Moses to set the people free and to become their deliverer. Moses was reticent and hesitant and obstinate and would not let God's people go. Therefore, God sent plagues among the the Egyptian peoples, culminating with the most unthinkable plague, which is the death angel, whereby the firstborn of each household was killed. With the proviso, of course, the exception that if your house had lamb's blood upon the mantle and the door frames, the death angel would pass over your home and be in quest for the next that did not. Passover was a very powerful time in Jewish history. So much so that not only was Passover celebrated, it was also reenacted. 
With every Passover that would follow, the people would get dressed in their traveling clothes in the dark of night. They would make unleavened bread and bitter herbs, and they would rush out into the night and come back in and eat the Passover meal. They'd rush out into the night. With the Passover lamb. That's why the metaphorical language is so beautiful that Jesus became the blood of the lamb that paid for our sin so that death would pass over us. Now, in the ninth century... You know, I, I got to give him credit again. That was a full-blown gospel nugget, although I don't know if he would understand why. Hang on. So he, now we've got a sermon where the gospel has made two very brief and unexplained flyovers so the gospel is in the vicinity. We, we know that. In century B.C., a man by the name of Solomon built a permanent temple on this mountain in Jerusalem whereby all the people would gather and celebrate. The Shekinah glory of God that came in a cloud would settle upon this, this temple and incredible worship happened. But true to form, humanity began to ebb and fall away. How many of us can can experience a cooling of love ever in our life? So much so was that cooling that relationship gave way to religion. And don't you know that religion is a... Uh, No, no, it's not that relationship gave way to religion. It's that true worship of the true God gave way to idolatry. Detestable thing. Because religion has nothing to do with relationship, but everything to do with law and rules. It began to be perverse in the temple, where commerce was now the epicenter of of the temple. No longer was the Shekinah glory there, but now people would be bartering and selling, and dishonored uh, thieves would be manipulating scales for dishonest gain, and Jesus was about to go on a tirade. Verse 13, when it was almost time for Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle and sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Now, when people think about the name of Jesus, they get this phlegmatic, passive, peace-loving, genteel picture in their mind, which is actually accurate because that was his temperament. But I want to tell you that Jesus was also a man of passion. How do we know that to be true? Check this out. He made a whip out of cords. Yeah, rawhide. And drove. And drove all from the... Oh, man. I, I'm so glad you didn't have to see it. And you only had to hear it. Good night. So a Don Johnson washout wearing a Hawaiian lei from a pulpit singing rawhide. Yeah. From the temple area, both sheep and cattle, and he turned over the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Jesus went straight UFC on them. I wouldn't want to get in the cage with Jesus. You know what I'm saying? Because he was passionate about his daddy, his daddy's house, and his daddy's people. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remember that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Father in heaven, take this word now and make it alive and electric to us. I Make it electric. Okay. So apparently all of that was prologue. Now we got prayer from prologue and then we'll get into the actual sermon itself. I pray that they'd be more than words on a page and words on a screen, but they would be life to our soul. 
God, I pray that your word would more than stir us. It would change us. Make us be the best version of us humanly possible. We want to be fulfilled. We want to be driven by passion for the things that you are passionate about. If you agree with that, would you say Yaman? Which, of course, is Jamaican for amen. Hallelujah. I don't think so. Passion. Passion. What drives you? What drives you? What drives you? I want to talk about four aspects of passion today because I believe if we can identify and get ourselves a good foundation. So on the day that Jesus rose from the grave, you're going to talk about four aspects of passion. Yaman. Uh-huh. About passion that we are going to be better served with good information that can lead to inspiration so that we may experience transformation. You can tweet that out right now. That's good right there. Yeah, I wouldn't tweet that out if somebody was holding a gun to my head. Because um, not only is it ridiculous, it's not even appropriate on Easter. And I've heard it a thousand times from other people who are far more gifted speakers than you are. Here's the first aspect about passion I'd have you know. Passion must be bridled. Because unbridled passion is dangerous. Mm, yeah. Um, where does the Bible say that the passion must be bridled because unbridled passion is dangerous? Okay. Passion must be bridled because unbridled passion is dangerous. When you see Jesus in the temple, don't you know? You can get it from, you can extrapolate, you can pull out, you can ascertain from the scripture that I read that Jesus was not being some kind of pacifist limping into the temple area. Come on, he came on a mission with a forward lean. He was passionate. But Jesus was measured. He had guardrails. He didn't go knock somebody's teeth in. He didn't go take a bat and whack them on. Whack, whack, whack. Jesus was measured while he was passionate at the same time. So many people that I have met in the course of my three decades of ministry, if you look at their life and why it's led to destruction and hardship with carnage in their wake, it's because passions were unrestrained and they did not live in the discipline of restraint. Come on. God has given you passion. You don't need to be embarrassed or ashamed of your passion. It just needs to be bridled. It needs to be bridled. Solomon wrote in the book of Proverbs, chapter 25 and verse 28. He said, a person without self-control is like a city with broken down walls. If your passion is focused on God, his house, and his people, the direct result will be fulfillment. And you can have passion, and you can have zeal, and you can have pop. Uh-huh. So I need uh, bridled passion in order to have fulfillment. I've never seen those two connected together in Scripture. Have you? You can have swag. You can have pep in your step. It's just going to be an after effect of the things that are primary rather than the things that are secondary. When I was eight years old, it was my dad's visitation week to get me. My dad was a knucklehead. He my mom and dad were married and divorced to each other three times. And so now you're going to regale us with a story about your childhood. Lovely. I couldn't figure it out, <laughs> apparently. My mom was a saint, and I was her favorite child. <laughs> For obvious reasons. I mean, look how wonderful I am. <laughs> 
But my dad, you know, he, he would forget his visitation days or he'd be late, hours late. On some days I'd sit in our trailer park on the little steps down there with my Sigmund and the Sea Monster lunch pail, just looking up the road, looking for my daddy to come down the road. And daddy missed it and he'd call, oh, I'm so sorry, I forgot, what a blah, blah, blah. But whenever my dad blew it, he tried to make up by doing something larger than life. How would you like to go to the moon? I mean, my, my dad would like buy something expensive or he'd try to just do something over the top. And my dad knew my weakness because my favorite television show when I was a little kid was The Lone Ranger. Hi-ho, silver, away! I mean, I, I watched that show morning, noon, and night. And I loved the thought of riding a horse. My dad calls me up after blowing me off the weekend before in his visitation and said, hey. So um, let me see if I have this straight. Um, it's Easter Sunday and we're hearing about your favorite TV show, the Lone Ranger and how you wanted to ride a horse rather than how Jesus bodily rose from the grave. Got it. Just want to make sure I understand what your priorities are. My friend's got a horse ranch. You want to go ride with your daddy? I said, do I? We didn't tell my mother, of course. <laughs> I went down to that ranch where the horses were, and I remember my daddy, you know, back in the day, back in the day, when you wanted to, like, take a photographic image, you didn't have an iPhone. You had this thing called a camera, and it had a flash bulb. How many remember the flash bulb? Now, if you were really wealthy, you could have 32 exposure film, but most of us just had eight. My dad was taking pictures because here's what he said. I want you to look at these pictures when you're older and remember what a great dad I was. <laughs> so he puts this 70-pound 8-year-old on top of this 1,000-pound animal with no saddle, no bridle, no stirrup, just sitting bareback. And now I remember watching my favorite... Do horses weigh 1,000 pounds? My favorite television show, I remember what the Lone Ranger did when he wanted the horse to go. He just kicked it. So I was sitting up there on that horse, and I kicked it. Boom! The horse just takes off on a dead run down the street. And when you're eight, you don't know many cuss words. So all you can muster is the silent scream. But my dad was cussing at the horse. So many people have passions that are unbridled, and their lives are destructive, and... There's hardship and heartache because your passions are not in alignment with the passions of God. Come on. It's time to get that vehicle into the shop of heaven and get that thing aligned with the passions of God. Someone say amen. The second thing we know about passion is this, is that passion must be fostered because unimpassioned. So what passage of scripture says, okay, passion must be bridled. Passion must, I'm taking notes here, must be fostered. Huh. I'm not familiar with all the great passages of the Bible, especially those, you know, resurrection texts that talk about the fostering of passion. We continue. Passioned ones are lifeless. Passion must be fostered. You see, here's what I believe about passion. Passion has far less to do with feeling as it does decision. Did you hear what I just said? Passion has more to do 
with your cognitive choice making than it does the palpitation of your cardiac reality. Mm. Yeah. Um, where did you find that in the Bible? I'm not familiar with those passages. Again, it's weird. Maybe you're working from an alternate biblical text and the one that, that you can actually just go to the Christian bookstore and purchase. So many people that I know that go through difficulties are very passionate about things in the beginning, but then they lose interest. Oh, kind of like say marriage. I was meeting with a couple the other day and this, I asked this guy, I said, why are you divorcing this girl, man? And he just looked at me very honestly, very honestly. He says, well, I just, I fell out of love. I said, what is it? A Burmese tiger pit? You were just walking along and you just fell into a big hole. You don't fall in. You don't fall out of love. You make a choice to love. And that passion needs to be fostered, massaged, turned over. Because it gets packed down, don't you know your passion does? I was very passionate about football in the early days of high school and later on in college. And I loved playing the game. I loved me some football, man, when it was back in the day. No, back in the day. we Man, there were things that they did then that they could never do now. I mean, my football coach, they, they were knuckle-dragging Neanderthals that have not yet passed the evolutionary path process of development. They could pull up their socks. So let me see if I got this straight. On Easter Sunday, we've heard about your love for the Lone Ranger and how you wanted to ride a horse. And we got to hear about a horse story from your life. And now you're regaling us with memories from your football days. Right. Yeah. And what, again, does this have to do with our crucified and risen Savior on Easter Sunday? I'm not seeing the... Con- we're learning a lot about you, but we're like learning nothing about Jesus. Stocks without bending over. <laughs> football, <laughs> football. No joke. My football coach would grab my, fa- my face mask. Now, this coach, he'd chewed Copenhagen mixed with brandy. He would grab my face mask and he'd be spitting Copenhagen and brandy and bad breath, gingivitis disease, into my face with every four-letter word you could imagine, making up cuss words. He would grab my head and headbutt me with his bare head. I was so passionate about football right up to the time of practice. <laughs> I said, Coach, when's practice going to be over? He says, when everybody pukes. I wasn't joking. Guys be going like, I'm just, I'm down, I'm down, I'm down. My passion for football began to wane, don't you know? But there was something about choice because I wanted to be great. It got me out of bed at 5 o'clock in the morning into the weight room before any, even the janitors were there because I got given a key. My passion for football was... What drove me to be the first person on the field and the last person to leave, very last. My passion that was fostered drove me into the film room. And I'm not talking about digital. I'm talking about 16 millimeter film back in the day. Jesus consistently went over to the mountains and prayed throughout night. He prayed all night long. Jesus himself had to foster his passion to keep that invigorated. And he- uh, Which of the apostles who wrote the New Testament um, pointed out that Jesus fostered his passion? I'm not familiar with any of them saying anything even remotely like it. I mean, you're just making stuff up. 
He made choices to massage the things that maybe he, he maybe this pastor, um, um, Pastor Archer here has a passion for just making up stuff and thinking it's biblical that he loved and cared for and he began to work those things into his very being and soul so that when it came time to go to the cross it was an afterthought there was no second thinking about it um then can you explain to me the whole thing in the uh garden you know, where jesus said um father of this cup can pass from me but not my will but yours that kind of seems to contradict what you're saying here is the fascination with zombies have, have, okay there's a weird segue have you noticed we all we, we are outside our mind yo there there are zombies on tv shows zombies in movies there's zombies in comic books there's zombies in video games there's zombies in the halloween costumes what is the deal with zombies what I think it is is that life is imitating art because what I've seen as a de facto reality is that so many people are walking down around town, walking around their school, walking around their place of work, presenting this image of life and they're dead on the inside. Just lifeless. You see, your passion has to be fostered and the only way your passion is going to get fostered is by what it's being fed. Because whatever you feed will grow. Whatever you feed will grow. In Revelation 3, Jesus is talking to one of the churches in Asia Minor. He says, I know your deeds, you good deed-doing bunch of godly saints. I know your deeds, and you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. So many people are unfulfilled and unimpassioned. And the reason why is because what they've been feeding is not what really fulfills them. Yeah, because I'm sure that letter um, there in the book of Revelation was all about them finding their fulfillment. It wasn't. That was sarcasm. Passion's got to be fostered because unimpassioned ones are lifeless. Number three, passion must be shared because detached ones are innocuous. I think one of the greatest strategies of life is do you think that because you can use a thesaurus to put together an educated sounding sentence that that somehow makes it biblical yeah i don't think so as being ineffective may sound strange to hear me say that but i think that people want to be effective they want their life to make a difference do you know that really the only way that you're really truly fulfilled is not by amassing but by dispensing the only way you become fulfilled in life is discovering why you're here. Why are you here taking up good air? And yeah, I think this is a good place to point this out. Um, this sermon really isn't about Jesus at all. It's a, well, you might as well just take a mirror out and start talking about yourself because this sermon is about you, 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 you. This is all about you. This isn't about Jesus. This is about you. It's This is like... 180 degrees off topic. The Bible's about Jesus. It's not about you. And this entire sermon, uh, which isn't actually a biblical teaching, is about you, not Jesus. Especially uh, poignant, the, easy to point out that this is happening, is the fact that it's occurring on Easter. In space. It's not so that you can amass stuff and gather stuff. It's so that you can get stuff and give stuff. 
You get to give. That's where fulfillment comes. It's called transcendence. It's what Jesus came to model. But so many of us are just innocuous. We're powerless. We have no effect. We have no influence. And that's because we're isolated and alone. Now you think about Jesus for a minute. Do you really believe that Jesus needs those sorry apostles? Jesus didn't need those boys. Oh, yeah, let me go uh, give me a fisherman and a tax collector and, and some kind of corrupt people down there and so I can make this thing called the church living. He didn't. You know what Jesus could, Jesus could have got the red cape, the blue boots, and put a big white S on his chest. Super Savior! And that's all he would have needed. Because Jesus could have been the superhero Savior. But Jesus modeled for us that we are better together. What? We are better together. You can applaud that. That's good right there. Yeah, no, I'm not applauding. I'm actually shaking my head and going, this is ridiculous. That's why your passions have got to be shared. We've got to be sharing our passions because when we're impassioned with others and we get this this kind of kinetic energy of the spirit, which is energy in motion. Come on. Do you think that Roger Archer could have moved from Seattle to Puyallup by himself and said, I'm going to start me a church. I'm a super dude and I'm going to rock this thing. I'm going to make this thing by myself. Not on your life. But I shared my passions with other people. And we gathered a core group of people. We began to share the vision. And we're, you know what we're doing right now? We're doing life together. Yeah, without Jesus, apparently, too. Yeah, it's fun that you all are together like that, but uh, it's weird that Jesus isn't really involved at all. I need you. And whether you like it or not, you need me. That's right. I, you know, no, actually, I, I don't need you. I grew up in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. And... Oh, no, you're going to tell us another story about yourself. Okay, so we heard about your horse thing when you were a kid, your football days, and now you, when you were growing up in Coeur d'Alene. Shores of Lake Coeur d'Alene. And back in the day, you know, what is the deal about car seats and children's When I came home from the hospital in 1965, my mom laid me on the front bench of her little old rambler, put her hand on the baby and hand on the wheel, and drove me home. Um, I turned out mostly pretty good. Well, during the summer, my mama used to take us to the, to the beach of Lake Coeur d'Alene. She would drop us off at 9 and pick us up at 5 in the evening. Back in the day. This is apparently Roger Archer's Sea of Galilee days or something close to it. All of us were kind of like little pygmies running around, isolated, didn't really know each other much. But there's a man by the name of Big Will. He was nine. (laughs) Big Will had a beard and drove his children to the beach at the age of nine. He was huge. He's a mountain of a kid. Do you you ever remember watching those those old Japanese uh, movies about Godzilla where the dialogue doesn't match up with the lips? Right? My name is Raja. You are powerless and puny. And I am going to kill you. I will crush your bones. And you will be destroyed. Sorry for your existence. And I will harm you eternally from the inside out. I mean, <laughs> some of you remember those old movies, right? So, so there was this kid named Big Will. And Big Will would... Did he 
write this sermon at the local bar? What is this? We would come out and be, play Godzilla. We would have our little sandcastles on the beach, and Big Will would come out and go, Me Godzilla, smash! That. This went on for about a month, and I had enough. I might have been 70 pounds soaking wet, but I was a genius. I was a strategist even back then. So here's what I did. I got all these random children that didn't really have any contact with each other or connection with each other. I said, here's the deal. We all hate Big Will, don't we? Yeah, we hate Big Will. Here's what we're going to do. Tomorrow we're going to gather. We're going to build one sandcastle. We're going to take all of our buckets and make one big sandcastle. And then when the sandcastle is done, I want you to fill up your buckets with sand. I'll be right in front of the sandcastle. When Big Will comes and stomps on the sandcastle, well, here's what I told him. The next day, Big Will came, sure enough, stomped on the sandcastle, expecting to hear a bunch of boohoos. Fifteen little aboriginal pygmies kept running from nowhere. Go for the head! Go for the head! We hit him and bloody that kid and sent him down the beach crying. It was precious. And what does this have to do with our crucified and risen? Yeah, I don't think we're going to get there. We are better together. Number four, number four, passion must be centered because ba- aren't you glad you came to so eat? So there's, there's four points to this Easter sermon. Uh, passion must be bridled, passion must be fostered, passion must be shared, and this last one. Yeah, I, I'm not familiar with any biblical passages that say any of this. The Easter. <laughs> Some of you invited your friends saying, yep, he's always like that. Cheering up. Kirkland brand drink. It's so satisfying. I got no money for that. Um, your passion must be centered because balanced ones are victorious. <laughs> balanced ones are victorious. Did you learn that from Mr. Miyagi? Who did you learn that from? Because the Bible doesn't teach this. There are two centers in the universe, not three. Two, not three. I have to be careful how I'm doing these fingers here. Something might come up inappropriate. There are two, not three. You're either going to be Christ-centered or self-centered, and this buffet line doesn't have another option. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Hang on a second here. The moment of supreme irony has now occurred in said sermon. Hang on. There are two, not three. You're either going to be Christ-centered or self-centered, and this buffet line doesn't have another option. All right, so there's two centers to the universe. You're either Christ-centered or self-centered. Well, this sermon isn't Christ-centered at all, so it must be the other kind of centered. Yep, I agree. You're either going to be narcissistic and focused on yourself, (laughs) like you are in the sermon, Or you're going to be heaven-centered and focused on Christ. That's right, because this sermon isn't about Christ, so it's narcissistically focusing on you. Glad you recognize that, that that's the options. It's funny in this narcissistic, me-centered sermon that you haven't identified that the very thing that you're mentioning here is the very thing that you're guilt... Well, yeah, we continue. And that's it. And the closer Jesus gets to the center of you, the more balanced, 
and the more harmonious your life becomes. Did you learn this from a new age yogi? Who did you learn this from? I've never heard any of the disciples of the apostles or any New Testament folk talking about harmony and center and focus and you know things like that. These all sound like new age spirituality categories. Jesus was passionate about three things. His daddy, his daddy's house, and his daddy's people. So many people, if you were to write your own worship song, you know, we sing these, don't you love our worship team? Aren't they great? They're awesome. We sing these great worship songs. But if you were to write a worship song about your life, I know what some of the words would say. I worship you, both soccer field. There is none like you. No. I worship you. Beautiful bass boat, that is what I long to do. I give you praise, you wonderful scrapbooking group. I worship you, ESPN, there is none like you. Where do you spend your time? Where do you spend your money? It will show you what you love. It's quantifiable and measurable every day of the week and twice on Sunday. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's measurable and quantifiable during a sermon as to who uh, a pastor focuses on and loves. It's who he preaches about. Hmm. Weird, isn't it? You know, so, you know, he's basically thrown down the indictment that they worship themselves and other things. All the while in this sermon, he isn't really preaching Christ. I've heard three stories about his life. Hmm. You see, your passion's got to be centered around Christ because balanced ones are victorious. That's why Jesus could go to the cross. Yeah, you, get, you must run balance. You know, you know, you, you, no karate, you get either karate do or karate don't. No karate maybe or you get squish. <sighs> there was nothing competing on the inside of his heart for his attention and affection. In 1976 in Montreal, Canada, it was the very first time that, ele- that electronic scoreboarding was introduced to the Olympiad. Uh, now we're going to get a Summer Olympics story. Is this the Nadia Comaniche story? Omega, the scoreboard company, contacted the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, and asked them this very simple question. Would you like to have a four-digit scoreboard or would you like a three-digit scoreboard? The answer, very simply, well, just give us a three-digit scoreboard because the highest score possible is 9.99. No one's ever received a perfect 10. Make it three, so they made it three. There was a 14-year-old Russian girl by the name of Nadia Elena Komenich. So we're hearing about Nadia. We've heard about your Coeur days. We heard about your football days. We heard about your horse thing. Um, and now we're hearing about Nadia. And we've barely, rarely at all heard anything really substantive about Jesus, yet alone his death and resurrection on Easter Sunday. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Weird, huh? And Nadia was the most prolific gymnast of her era up until that time. 14 years of age. She performed her routine on the balance beam that night in Montreal to the amazement and awe and wonder of the crowd and to the judges alike. 
After her routine was concluded, there was an awkward delay in the posting of the score. For when the Omega scoreboard reflected her routine, it read 1.00. The crowd began to grumble and groan. Did she have some faults? Were there, were there some penalties occurred, incurred by her routine? Did she do something illegal? Because how could she get nine points deducted from her score? When in actuality, the scoreboard did not and could not reflect the fact that Nadia Elena Komenich had received the first ever perfect 10 in Olympic competition. And it would have been amazing if that was a singular feat, but in that Olympiad, Nadia Elena Komenich went on to score six more perfect 10s. And every time the crescendo of the crowd would raise when the 10 was posted, 1.00. She was interviewed and asked the question, to what do you attribute the ability to do what no other gymnast has ever been able to do before? And her response was this, I tell you the truth. Honestly, I was the most balanced I've ever been. My center was perfect. Um, yeah, Nadia's story doesn't actually show up in the Bible. How centered are you? I don't even know what you mean. How balanced are you? I have no idea. I mean, maybe you should get out some, you know, measurement devices to figure out where my balance is. Is there a center? I, probably. There, everybody has a center of gravity. Is there a balance? Or does it need Jesus? Uh-huh. And that, folks, is the end of <laughs> Sermon... Uh, wild card sermon number two, our final entry into this year's worst Easter sermon of the year contest. That was driven by passion by Roger Archer of Foursquare Church in Puyallup, uh, Washington. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. In fact, if you'd like to vote on it, you can vote by going to Fighting for the Faith right now and vote on this. You get all of our contestants are up there. Just hit one of the ones. It's at fightingforthefaith.com. Till next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ in his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Again, don't forget to vote and only vote once. See you next week, folks.